Welcome back to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I'm, uh, I've got a really cool guest if you like, I don't know, football, uh, music, uh, tattoos, uh, social work, uh, you, you name it. Uh, it's really someone who's crafted a life. And uh, one of the things we're, we, we talk about that uh, is something I've really been interested in uh, um, for a long time is uh, this, this concept of identity. I mean, it sounds a little academic, doesn't it? Identity. Basically, it means who we are. Who, who are we as people? Uh, what's the label that we put on ourselves? What's the label that we put that we allow other people to put on 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 us? How do we become? How do we become who we who we end up becoming? Uh, these are kind of the fundamental questions of of life, and it's great to have a guest that can kind of engage with me on this and share his uh, his point of view about that. And uh, and that's who we have today. It's uh, it's Brian Bartholomew. Uh, Brian, uh, well, you know, he had a career in the NFL snapping the ball of Tom Brady. So maybe I should stop right there and bring him in, right? Uh, but what's the next step in life? And the funny thing about Brian is he can't exactly tell you because he's done so many different things. And that's this this identity. Who who is he? And he's really tried to create many things in his life, from from music uh, to to social work to tattoos, as I said, a lot of other things. He's really the the, the ideal example of someone who's who's created stuff. And he he actually walked away from what probably a lot of people would consider a dream job. You know, snapping the ball with Tom Brady is a pretty pretty cool thing. Being part of that that circle of the New England Patriots and the, and the incredible success, uh, the success story that they've had. Um, and, and he grew up being an athlete, a, prof- um, a college football player, a professional football player. That's what he was really completely all about, and he, he walked away from it. He walked away from it, and he ended up being, uh, um, being in a touring band, playing country music and other music, Americana, um, and ended up uh, uh, continuing to reinvent himself. Just a fascinating person with great stories, not just about Tom Brady, but lots of other things. So let's, uh, let's welcome and, and pull up a nice seat for, uh, for Brian, Brian Balthamus. We're back at the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein. I'm a professor at Dartmouth College, and my guest today is Brian Bartholomew. Hi, Brian. Howdy, Sid. Good to be here. Good to, good to have you. Thank you. Um, and, you know, uh, I want to start with uh, your career playing for one of the most successful sports franchises in modern times, the uh, New England Patriots. Yeah. Now, let's hope that, you know, half of the country doesn't turn this off right away <laughs> because, you know, Belichick and Brady uh, and, and company, uh, they could be controversial. But, uh, yes. uh, but you, uh, you were part of that for, for a period of time. What, what was that like? Yeah, I think it was uh, enlightening, if anything. Um, watching, I guess as you're saying, one of the, the most successful teams in the NFL – and looking broader, the NFL being a very successful business in this country, yeah, um, I think for me it was fascinating to watch how that operated. And I went in, you know, you're young when you get to the NFL, so you don't know a whole lot. And even going in there with uh, some presumptions about who is what or what is what, you know, going into there, I think one of the things that hit me, I was raised in a rural town in Ohio, and so for whatever the selling image of Tom Brady as you say, the controversial nature, yeah. I had in my mind, oh, this hair-drying yuppie who wears <laughs> furry boots, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so I went in with that kind of mentality and uh, observing him, even the first week, he was the first guy in, last guy out, uh-huh. most diligent person. And, you know, I think slowly the pieces started to fall even outside of football, that that success came from the amount of time he put into it and that really it was a smart play in marketing for him 
beyond football to to be that character. Yeah. But yeah, a, totally an awakening experience in so many levels. Yeah, yeah. You said two things really interesting. One is we have these thoughts in our head before we meet someone. <laughs> I mean, Tom Brady's a famous guy, but totally. even you know someone's going out on a date, you could conjure up all sorts yes. of things, or you're going on a job interview, For or sure. you're starting a job, or what For have sure. you. I'm a teacher, you walk in the class, you have a certain feel. It's very yeah. interesting and in how reality kind of bounces up. But what happens is we frame our thinking yes. based on what that is, yes. and that, as a result, kind of colors our thinking. It does. That. Yeah. Well, uh, even into everyday life, I remember when I first started playing music, which we'll get to later, but... Um, it was one of the first house shows I played, and we had made the mistake in retrospect of looking this band up on Facebook. And, you know, maybe they had like 300 fans, but suddenly it grew in my mind that they were the image that was presented. Yeah, right. So when I met them, there was kind of a jarring piece to that, and I was like, oh, even something as small as Facebook and perceiving those those photographs can change how you meet someone. So meeting a Tom Brady and a Bill Belichick, mm-hmm. who you grow up, we, we were in Steelers country, and so, you know, Patriots oh, the were they were bad news. Although growing up, they were a terrible team. <laughs> that's <laughs> so, true, that's so, true enough. They were terrible you know, until they were the best. Yeah. Yeah, talk about a flip right there. Yeah. So um, so Brady, first in, last out. Did, did you have any relationship with him? I mean, did you yeah, talk Yeah, I mean, much? to a bit. So I won't get too tangential, but I hadn't, I hadn't really played center much in college. I played one season of it. And so I didn't really know what I was doing. But the Patriots picked me up as a center and a swing lineman, meaning I could play guard and tackle and center. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had to deal with Tom directly in practice warming up. At yeah. one point, um, the offensive line coach who's back now, Dante Scarnecchi, I remember him whispering something about not breaking Tom's hands or else I'd never have a job in the NFL. <laughs> so, you know, until I really get to meet Tom, there's this whole, like, you have $10 million of hand between your legs and you're about to snap a really, you know, a hard ball up there. Don't shatter the man's mm. finger. But, no, I, he he was a super sweet, real guy. I think the first interaction that broke it for me um, as a rookie – if a, I guess call them upperclassmen, if a veteran asks you to get balls signed um, by the team for gifts, uh, then you do it. You're obligated. And when it's like for someone's direct family, so in this case, you know, a veteran lineman says, hey, can you get autographs for me? And I said, okay. Um, make sure you get Tom Brady. So here I am, 22, mm. super nervous. Yeah. I hadn't been wearing deodorant. I smelled really bad. I was having like <laughs> armpit stuff with it. So I walk up to Tom and I'm, I'm kind of meek. I'm like, hey, can you sign this? It's for so-and-so. And he says, yeah, and he signs it. And then he's like, what? what's that smell? Oh, boy. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, here you are, you know, and you're about to offend Tom Brady with your armpits. And, <laughs> yeah, nice and he, first impressions. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And and he turns and stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, it's me. I don't really wear deodorant. He's like, oh, do you have reactions to, like, deodorant? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, here, try this. Goes in and gets me these little wipes. And he's like, yeah, I have the same problem. I think it was at that point I was like, oh, all this stuff built up about you is, you know, you've you've earned it for sure and you've played all your cards wisely, but you are just another person who is smart and hardworking and becomes successful. I think that shattered a lot of that, like, uh, yeah. that wall. Real, a real person. Totally. That's yeah. a pretty funny way to kind of break the ice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, so you were snapping the ball to him in, in practice quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And these were real plays from scrimmage, so the defense came after you and all the rest? Yeah. I think 
again, I didn't really know how to play center in that first kind of practice. When you are a rookie and you're kind of second string, you're playing the starting lineup on the defensive side. Uh So here I am, whether it's a backup quarterback or Tom, and I'm defending against Vince Wilfork. And for those who don't know, he's, I don't know, probably 6'3", 360 pounds. He's a human rock, Mm -hmm. and he's brilliant and a great football player. So I have a rock of a human who's also super athletic over me. And at this point, Teddy Bruschi, who I believe is a Hall of Famer, is in the A-gap. So I'm trying to still figure out really how to snap a ball, not break million-dollar hands, not get squished by a human rock or a really smart uh, Hall of Fame linebacker. And all the time, I'm not even that invested in playing in the NFL, and I'm wondering, like, how did I wind up in this very odd Uh predicament? But the only thing to do is snap the ball appropriately and try, like, heck, to not get squashed. As these guys (laughs) came after you. (laughs) Those uh, those thoughts about second thoughts and doubts, probably not the best thing to be having them in, you know, uh, a couple of thousand pounds of human human, uh, muscle and talent are coming down on you. That's it. With another... You know, stack of human talent behind you. That's right. That's yeah. right. Wow. Um, what about uh, Belichick? Did you ever have much interaction with him? Yeah, yeah, a decent amount. I, I think one of my one of my favorite stories about Bill. He uh, so I guess first off, and doesn't need pretense to say he's brilliant, um, and he's also hilarious. As part of it, I don't think Not people too many know. people would, yeah. thought, would, would have understood. Or yeah, and maybe maybe I misinterpreted it, but he cracked me up. So. One of his strategies um, that I thought was really smart, he came in to talk to the rookies, and I can't remember if it was every day or once a week, I don't recall, Um, but he would come in and he would get uh, a printout of all the foolish mistakes that off-field would occur around the NFL. So he'd run down this list and he'd be like, well, this gentleman here was at a, you know, a nightclub that's like, you know, foul one. And then it was after 12. Nothing good happens after 12. And then he had a weapon in his car. And he'd be like, what do you think is going to happen? And it was all this, like, training you just on how dumb you have to be to get in trouble off the field. Mm -hmm. But his delivery was dry and hilarious. And so I think half the guys were terrified. And I sat in the back being like, ESPN should get this. Like, <laughs> this is too good of a stand-up routine. He was, he was teaching, but... He was uh, teaching in a brilliant way. Yeah. And, you know, I think he learned always as a person to deliver the message as clear and direct as possible. There was no, there was no roundabout. It was a direct path of, like, don't do these things. Like, you know, mm-hmm. and if you do, you're mm-hmm. gone. Mm-hmm. And if you do, you're, you know, you're going to be in trouble and it's your own fault because right. you're advised not to. Right. I mean, over the years, have been all sorts of examples of uh, seemingly great football players that were benched or <laughs> traded or uh, a couple of years ago in the yeah. Super Bowl. Um, uh, what was his name? Butler. Yeah. Was supposed to start. He was exactly. a star and something happened mm-hmm. and he didn't play at all. Yeah. Um, none of that surprises you, though, does it? No, none. And it's interesting. I have I have a bit more insight into the whole coaching mentality that he had. He came up under Bill Parcells, um, I guess, in the 90s, at the same time that my college head coach, Al Groh, was working with him. So I don't know the full timeline, but, you know, Al was on defense, Bill was on offense, mm-hmm. both learning under Parcells. So mm-hmm. when you look at uh, Bill's success, you're talking about a greater lineage of football coaches yep. extending to Bill Parcells. Uh, but one of the mentalities that both Bill and uh, Bill and Al all took was that as a operation, you're like a machine. 
So within that machine, you serve your function and you serve it as well as you can. Mm -hmm. You don't step out of line with that. And so I think Bill has done an amazing job. If you're a lineman, you focus on being the best lineman within your position Mm -hmm. and you don't worry about the offensive play calling or the receivers. Um, You learn to take the correct step and you stay in line. And that, I think, extends to not having distractions off field. You know, if you have a machine part that is throwing off a burr and getting caught in another sprocket, well, you clean that machine part or you get rid of it. And so I think he takes that mentality where he would rather invest in guys that maybe are presumably not as talented or as high of an asset uh, to polish them to run their function perfectly. Yeah. And, you know, that that system works. It's worked for a lot of coaches coming up under that, and I think Bill is a wonderful executor of right. that. Right, and, and you're saying that may have come from Parcells as well. Yeah, I think, and I don't, you know, who knows where it came from from Parcells, but, yeah, that lineage, and you can see that. I forget the coach's name, but there's a, a really well-known coach in Southern California who's had, you know, some of the best success in college football ever. He's from that same Parcells lineage. And it comes down to that, even, you know, taking taking a look at your whole system and how it operates and making sure that each of your players knows that their function is such. Yeah, yeah. that lineage uh, really is a powerful thing. It's actually related to something I wrote a book on mm. not that long ago that I called Super Bosses. And I talked about... <laughs> Uh, yeah. Bill Walsh, uh, yeah. San Francisco 49ers, who's probably the single most influential head coach, at least of in course. terms of the development of talent yes. and the creation yes. um, of assistant coaches. Yes. Huge, huge uh, number. By the yes. way, in that analysis where you can actually do it quantitatively, Parcells was number two, so you know, <laughs> not, not a surprise, there I you suspect. Go. To Small you. world. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so you, you, you said you weren't that into football while you were uh, uh, hanging out. I mean, this was a dream job. What was wrong with you? (laughs) Uh, That was the question that plagued me for years. Um, I've always been uh, more of an art and music kid, an outdoors kid, than I ever was uh, competition or really monetarily driven. Like money's never been uh, much of a motivator for me, which is problematic, you know, at times. And so I think I ended up in college football in part because I wanted to get out of rural Ohio. You grew up in a small town in Ohio? Small town in Ohio, Amish country. And my father was a football coach and a wonderful coach, you know, taught me how to throw curveballs when I was young. And Mm -hmm. he really loves loves sports. He got out of his kind of rough childhood situation via playing football. So it was Uh in my lineage. So I go to school. You know, UVA is a great school where I attended college. Um, and it's getting away from where I grew up. So I attend there, and I still I don't love football throughout that, but there's parts of the brotherhood I enjoy. Yep. So I get it gets to be time to graduate college, and I really look at the options, and my parents were teachers, and I grew up working a bit on farms and for some other small odd jobs. And so in my mind, you know, I'm 21, 22 years old, the only jobs that exist are become a teacher, work on a farm or go to the NFL. And so at that point, I was like, well, I guess the NFL seems right. And that's where it got difficult, Um, that loss of brotherhood. At least in college, you're playing with your best friends. Mm. So there's a a schoolyard mentality, but the NFL is an occupation. You're... You're playing to provide for your family. It mm. is your career. It's a business. Yeah, that didn't that didn't really suit me uh, very well. It, and the thing you allude to though is was a really kind of an ill problem for me for a long time. 
the majority of people when I was playing in the NFL, it was always that. This is a dream for so many Americans, even family of mine. They couldn't understand why I was unhappy or wanted to leave, um, but it wasn't necessarily mine. So it was hard to make my mind up that, oh, this isn't the healthiest course of life, even though it's other people's dream. Right. You, I mean, you have to be pretty strong to do that. Um, I guess, or stupid. <laughs> well, I I'm not so sure about that. But so how did, how did it end? Did you tell, say, Coach Belichick? Or, yeah, or, yeah the end's pretty interesting for me. So at this point, I think I had, I had started to have a hard time figuring out an exit strategy, and that was terrifying. I didn't actually know what I wanted to do, right? Yeah. I just knew it wasn't this anymore. Mm -hmm. I knew that I was uh, becoming a bit unhealthy, and I needed to do something. And so uh, I think I kind of knew per numbers that there wasn't room for an offensive lineman the last preseason I was there. So my idea was I'll collect a little more paycheck through preseason. I know they're going to release me. And the season before, they had released me and picked me back up several times as like a numbers game. So it would move around the roster depending on injuries. So I said, well, when they release me for the first time, I'll let them know, don't call me back. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a year off of football. Mm -hmm. And then to Bill Belichick, and uh, I'm grateful for it to this day, was very direct with me. I went in there, and I'm ready to make this big speech. You know, I don't think football's for me. And he cut right to it. Um, what did he say to me? He looked at me. He's like, you don't want to be here. You need to figure out what you want to do and go do that. You know, and at this point... <laughs> I've told this story before. I'm trying not to well up in Bill Belichick's office. Mm. You know, it was the first time someone had been so direct mm. and so honest. And, you know, I've, I've thought about that a lot, that it was incredible. He saw that, took the time to note it on my way out. But, yeah, I'm trying not to well up and cry, knowing also I have no idea what I'm going to do. Right. This entire chapter of my life that I've been playing football since middle school is over, and I'm overwhelmingly happy and feel free. At the same time, I have no idea how to make money otherwise. Right, right. Um, but, yeah, it kind of ended that way. Took my trash bag of stuff from the locker. I think it was like a mandolin, a sketch pad, a couple random shirts, and then mm -hmm. walked to my truck. And I don't know what happened after that. Probably wrote a bunch of songs. <laughs> so you, on the way out, did you say goodbye to anybody? I mean, were people around? Or was well, like no, late I mean, the... I guess, yeah, I guess you don't know this if you're not in an NFL locker room, you kind of know when they're coming for you, right? So you know when cut day is, and usually three rounds of mm -hmm. cuts. Mm -hmm. So I think this was the last cut after maybe the last preseason game. And the assistants, you know, they come in, and uh, they got a book, and you're like, oh, boy. And they always got a trash bag for you to put your locker in. So, like, you get maybe a few minutes to say goodbye to some people, but... Mm -hmm. You go, and they follow you, and then you go, and you talk, and then they follow you, and they take your ID badge, and that's it. You it's know? time to go. They yeah, you, you to say go. bye to the gate guy. Yeah. You're not getting back in. Right. Um, right. That was okay for me. You know, again. You were ready to do that. I that's was ready to. to and I think it's difference between college football. You spend four years with these guys, and yeah. you live with them. In the NFL, there are guys you're fond of, but it's coworkers. You right. know, it's a different scenario. Exactly, exactly. So back to your your dad was a football player as well, mm -hmm. and um, and sounds like a dad was really involved in your life, especially with For sports, sure. right? And he was a teacher or a coach. Yeah, or? yeah, both, both yeah. at uh, at the at the high school. At the high school, yeah. Yeah. So you were on the, the football team with. When he was the coach? You <laughs> played of, for your dad? Kind of. He's a, uh, you know, talk about respect. I'm a new parent. I have twin uh, two-year-olds. My father had 
gotten this first job that he stayed with his whole life, uh, teaching and coaching at a school called Kenston High School. And he, um, until about middle school, he was coaching uh, the high school varsity football. He was the assistant basketball coach, and he was a baseball coach. And um, he told me at the time, again, I didn't realize how big of it him it was, but he took a step back from those mm-hmm. um, so that I could be my own person, which was amazing. So he, through high school, was still the assistant basketball coach, but mm-hmm. he relieved himself of other duties so that he wasn't stepping on wow. toes. Really? Yeah, That's which was amazing. Yeah, then he yeah, went yeah. back and, and coached middle school a bit after I graduated. Um, but, you know, I think in the way that I was slightly disillusioned with football, I think he hit that a bit too. He was always in it for learning mental toughness, hard work, camaraderie, pushing past your boundaries. But, you know, football in the early 2000s, especially in Ohio, was getting more and more populated with people who had um, some kind of ego agenda. And I think he didn't his, – his love of football was never based on celebrity. Yeah. You know, football in the 70s wasn't that. It was becoming televised, but it was a grit sport. Mm-hmm. There was still a lot of uh, semi-professional teams where grown men just wanted to fight each other to get <laughs> stuff out. And so he came from that school. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, respectfully, he stepped back and gave me space. So you, uh, you, were, re- you were recruited to mm-hmm. the UVA. Yep. Uh, how does that process work? Because, <laughs> you know, every now yeah. and then you read some or hear about some story about some school getting in trouble, whether it's a coach for or sure. assistant coach or a booster. Because, I mean, it's an odd, you know, for, for, for the layman out there, it's an odd <laughs> thing because you're, you're bringing in these kids. Uh, they're yeah. potentially going to make a lot of money for you in the school. They, yeah. they, they can get a scholarship, but they can't yeah. get paid. Yeah. And most of them don't end up with professional careers. And it's a brutal sport, as you know. Oh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, how did that happen, <laughs> that whole recruiting thing? So, you know, I, I think, let me, let me jog this back. I haven't thought about this in years. So you, you get recruited, and uh, either recruiters from the college teams come to your school or they mm-hmm. contact you. Um, and you can get recruited by as many or as few teams, um, and then you're allowed what are called official visits. And I believe in the early 2000s, that was somewhere around five or six, you know? Five or di- six different schools. Different schools, yeah. correct. Yeah. So you would travel to them, um, and then I, of course, got more experience with this on the other end. You would be paired up with players on the team mm-hmm. who would take you out for a night or two and let you see kind of the culture of the team, yep. Yep. see the facilities, and then you would make a decision based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my particular circumstance, coming from Ohio, uh, where I was at, it wasn't a school that a lot of recruiters came to, and I was an offensive lineman. There's not like, you know, a tight end offensive lineman. There's not a ton of hard recruiting or notable recruiting that comes out of that. And my father, he put together a highlight film of me playing hmm. both football and basketball and mailed them out, and it worked. A lot of, a lot of schools had their sponsors, and it worked. So, yeah, I took a couple of official visits with, you know, uh, how much to go into. They can be a bit, uh, you know, they can go different directions. I think some of the things you're talking about with violations – Sometimes when you leave a 18-year-old uh, with a bunch of 21-year-olds, maybe the cultural ideals do not line up. So mm. you fall into violation if, say, your 21-year-olds are taking your 18-year-olds to a bar or a strip club or whatever way that a 21-year-old thinks you entice talent. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually became very good as uh, one of the recruiting hosts in college because I didn't necessarily buy into all of that toxic masculinity. So. 
they would have me take out people that maybe they knew that wasn't the thing. Right. You know, I took one of the one of the recruits to like a punk rock Halloween party where my now wife was dressed as uh, Daphne from Scooby Doo, and then we watched <laughs> pro wrestling, and he loved that. That you know, he's an offensive lineman. He's like, oh, this is great. This is like what I would do. Um, but yeah, so recruiting is a weird, it's a weird sport. And yeah. I'm sure it gets even dirtier with handouts and promises, but I don't know much about you it. Didn't, you didn't see any of that, at least. No. Yeah. Uh-uh. And my dad, again, smart guy, of all the kind of offers and ways to pursue, he knew University of Virginia was a great school. Absolutely. And of the best ones that I had on the table. And so, you know, he guided me gently that that was a wise decision to uh, be affiliated with that institution. So when you graduated, you you were undrafted. Mm-hmm. But then how did you end up uh, with, with, the, the, Patriots, with yeah. the Patriots? Yeah. So I don't know when they made the change. The You know, the drafting used to go up, I believe, to like 10 or 12 rounds. Huh. So I think probably somewhere in the late 90s, early 2000s, they cut it to six rounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, throughout draft day, I had friends who were getting calls. So you're watching the TV. If you're a really high draft pick, your agent is with you. Mm-hmm. If you're lower like me, your agent's on the phone. So you're kind of watching all day, fielding calls. So that day I'm fielding calls from the Patriots, from the Giants. Who else? Maybe Jacksonville. What, what would they ask you or tell you? Uh, you know, at that point, I think with me, in retrospect, they knew I would most likely become an undrafted free agent. Mm-hmm. And that, and you know, back to the Patriots, that's one of their brilliant skills. They know how to look for talent in the undrafted sector that mm-hmm. blooms. You know, Tom Brady was a backup. Mm-hmm. He wasn't. I think he was a sixth round pick. He that's wasn't. Right. He wasn't a, a first round. And they were. They were really great. A guy named Scott Paoli was in charge of that in my era. Um, but he was brilliant. So, you know, they're telling you why it's good to go there. They're telling you, uh, you know, we're going to try and get you in the sixth round when probably they tell all of the guys they're trying to get as free agents mm-hmm. that. So, you know, they give you the facts about who's in their position, why their job is the best one to take and what they can offer for money. Um, and then once the draft is over, you know, you talk to your parents in my case and you talk to your agent and then you yep. make a decision. You know, I think I went to the Patriots because I wanted to see what, the most successful team looked like. You, you wanted it, to see that. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. a good decision if I wanted a job. They had like three guys who were pro bowlers. <laughs> they had taken the year before a uh, first-round draft pick as a guard who was on track to be a pro bowler. Um, that wasn't a good place to go get in as a lineman. But, you know, the curiosity in me is someone who likes, you know, is interested and curious, wanted to see what that was. Yeah, that is different. Yeah, and at the time I had inch gauges in my ear, and I think the Giants, uh, what was his name, Coughlin, Tom Coughlin, military style, he's Mm. like, you got to take those out, and I was like, (laughs) sorry, bud. Why did he say you had to take (laughs) them? I had these inch gauges, big holes in my ears. Oh, and he said, I had long hair, you know, and they didn't, they they told me, that we're going to have to trim your look up a bit. Then I think his daughter might have married this heavily tattooed lineman, ironically. But that's tangential. So, yeah, you know, it was kind of that. I wanted to see the pats. I didn't want to cut my hair. So that seemed like that a good That sounds like a good enough reason right there. Yeah, and totally. You got, you, and you got kind of an inside look at uh, one yeah. of the most successful sports franchises of modern time. For sure. Yeah, and yeah. as much as I wanted. That was like the, it was the perfect length for me. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Good. Well, we're talking, uh, we're talking to Brian about uh, life uh, with the Patriots and the NFL, a little bit of his background. And when we, uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to see what he's been doing since uh, <laughs> uh, Bill Belichick told him to go find something you, you really love to do. Mm. Be right back. 
And as we take this, quote, commercial uh, break, um, I can't help but uh, point out uh, that, you know, Brian was, was undrafted um, out of college. And uh, so it, it, it makes me think of, you know, well, how do you know what great talent is? How does anyone know? In the NFL, they spend a ton of time trying to figure out what great talent is. And uh, it's something I spent a lot of time myself uh, doing in, um, in some of my own research, Super Bosses, a uh, book that came out three years ago in the Super Bosses playbook that uh, came out earlier this past winter, uh, are examples of books that uh, I've done where I try to answer the question, what is great talent? How do you know who great talent is? How do you find out who those people are? And how do you help them get better? And so I was really struck when Brian said, you know, I was undrafted. He ends up, you know, playing, not having a long career, but good enough to play with Tom Brady for a period of time, certainly in training camp and playing at, a, at, at that type of level. Uh, so the, the problem of finding, um, finding great talent is a problem that exists. It's really interesting to think about it in sports because there's so many analytics in sports, in football, baseball especially, and, and, and they try to, uh, you know, in football they have these, these, um, these combines where people, uh, where athletes, uh, college athletes are, are, are running and, and they're clocking them in speed and, and jumping and moving and all kinds of different things and they're trying to get the right metrics. And anyone in business, anyone who's ever hired anyone, in any job, whether it's business or politics or government or, or what have you, has dealt with exactly the same problem, which is how do you really know if she's the right person? And it turns out that it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, there is some art to it. There are going to be some mistakes that are going to happen. But I actually think that there's a lot we can, we can look for. And um, my, my research on super bosses, uh, I identified a bunch of things that some of the best recruiters uh, in any industry have done and who, what they look for. You know, things like, like flexibility and, and, and intelligence um, and creativity. And it's very interesting to think about whether those things translate across to whatever, whatever business, whatever job, whatever industry you are, you're in as you listen to, uh, as you listen to that. Um, well, let's get back to uh, Brian and uh, the conversation. We're back with Brian Barthelmus. And, uh, you know, during our uh, break, we were just chatting a little bit, and I thought, wow, that's kind of an interesting idea. We were talking about how people know something is real. Mm. It's kind of related to learning, and, uh, and you mentioned your wife that she has to, has to read something to know. Is that, was that For what you were sure. saying? yeah. Yeah, before she knows it's, it's real? Yeah. And as opposed to what? Totally. You know, I think that idea became most uh, prevalent and real in our lives once we had children. You know, we always knew that we were we learned differently. Um, but now having kids, it's become more obvious. So my wife is, she's from Northern Virginia. She was a valedictorian of her high school. She went to UVA, graduated with honors, went to Brown for her uh, public health degree, and now works here at Dartmouth. Um, I, on the other hand, I root around and have to butt my head against 16 walls and play football for eight years of my life before I realize it's not a good fit. But when I learn a lesson, I learn it well. <laughs> um, and, you know, so it, it came in, I think there's a bit of like this intuitive learning versus like someone who has to read and digest uh, right. something more academic. And, exactly. you know, having children now, it's not that either is better or worse. It's, um, it's that they're both different. And that takes us a lot of conversation where I try and say, well, intuitively, I know we should do this. And she says, well, we should get a book on it, you know, and, and usually both of us feel frustrated 
Um, but we've learned that kind of doing both of those creates a better result. Yeah. And it's really helped, I think, both of us to learn how we learn. What kind of learners are we? Yeah. Just because you're out of school doesn't mean that learning ceases to occur. De- definitely. I mean, people, hopefully people are always learning. And yeah. hopefully they're learning as they're listening to us chat right here as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, how people, it's very interesting because the intuitive, the experiential, uh, kind, of, kind of way we think about education Many people think about education as the power, the importance of experiential exercise activities. Yes. And it's that that's the way in which you can internalize it. It becomes real to you, and you remember the, the lessons or the insights because you've created them yourself yes. as opposed to being told by somebody else. And very often, uh, I don't know, reading about something or Googling something, mm. it, it can give you the, the answer, as, as is generally known, but it's also an answer that often gets quickly forgotten. For sure. Um, because it didn't come up in any type of kind of organic, almost emotional yeah. emotional state. So it's interesting to hear you describe kind of that. that it is. And, well, know. and I've been thinking on it a lot recently. Uh, a friend of mine who I met through my wife named Manish um, is doing this program for the Dartmouth undergraduates who are on a med school track where he has people come in and, and talk to them. Uh, and generally people who are successful in a field. So I'm having lunch with Manish and trying to figure out what I'm supposed to tell a bunch of 20-year-olds, you know. And it becomes a bit more obvious to me over the past week that it's this idea of being a whole person, right, that, like, you're not just, in this given case, uh, on track to be a med student. You also might have played tuba in high school and loved that. Um, And so I thought to myself, well, when you're 18 or 19, you're not thinking about trying to be the most well or, or like, healthy person. So how do I pitch this to a bunch of 18 or 19-year-olds? And I thought, okay, well, when it's a matter of success, um, to be a whole person, uh, whether, you know, whether that's med school on one side or you love theater on the other, why does that make you more successful? And so I've been thinking about this a bunch of nights, and I think the idea is you learn different things on both sides, right? So there are things you can learn in med school, but there's a whole other set that you'll learn from performing theater, and those both become intertwined and will make you stronger than another candidate who is solely learning from med school. Um, And at the same time, it gives you a safe haven from that intense thing. So, you know, when we're talking about my career with music, I had been playing music through through football in college and then into the NFL. And part of the reason I think I achieved that success is because I had this safe place. When football was too daunting and learning plays and the pressure was huge, I would pick up a banjo and I'd get lost for three hours. And, you know, some people find reprieve in different ways, whether it's golf or whiskey. For me, banjo is healthier um, than both of those. And so I think when you're considering learning, there is both, there's a huge advantage to having more of a roundedness to your experience that isn't only for health's sake. It does drive your success because of alternative visions on something. It's a, that's a great point. In fact, I, I think we know that variability or, or, or variety of different activities and experiences people have in their lives, that's actually how you learn. Because mm-hmm. you see what works, you see what doesn't work, you see different kind of um, um, situations and Slowly but surely, it starts to form into into your brain yes. and sometimes into into our hearts as well. Yes. The other thing that you made me think about is identity. Mm. Uh, you know, who who are we, right? <laughs> who are we? It's and huge. I think about so 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 we're we're talking. Let's say Brian Brian asked me, well, who who are you, Sid? And so how would I answer that? Well, let's see. <laughs> um, I'm a professor. I'm a father. Yeah. I'm a husband. 
Uh, I'm um, I'm a podcaster now. <laughs> uh, so there's a bunch of career things. I'm a teacher. A bunch of uh, I'm an author. A lot of career things and then a lot of personal things. But it turns out that they're all the same me. Yes. They're all part of the same yes. person. And uh, it's funny. I kind of go back to this sometimes in some of the some of these podcasts when we get into these conversations because we are only one person. We mm-hmm. might think. You know, we're uh, we're on the job here. We're doing this project here. We're at home with our spouse or our friends or whatever here. But it's really the same brain, the same DNA, same heart. Yes. Um, it's it's all the same. It all overlaps, which is also why one of the things I really have been enjoying doing uh, in the podcast, in the Sidcast, is talking about both. Like we're talking about yes. your personal life and you know how you think and kind of some of your thoughts and and. and and, and your family, as well as some of the professional things that yeah. you've done at the same time. It's the same person, right? It is. Well, I, I find that interesting. There's this cultural thing where you meet someone and the first thing you ask, which for me is complicated. I was an athlete, a musician, a social worker, and I uh, make tattoos and fine art, right? And often we're trained that the first thing you ask someone is, what do you do for work? You know, why is that tangibly the most important fact about Absolutely. someone? So I've tried to retrain that, and I often ask people, how do you spend your time? Mm. And it's funny because I'll, I'll say that to folks, and then, you know, the response is sometimes confused. Like, how do I spend my time? Because <laughs> they but, haven't thought of it. You're reframing <laughs> an old question. And totally. I think if you hear that, how you spend your time, presumably it's not a question to say what you do between, you know, 8 and 6 or whatever yes. you work uh, it's yeah. about more than that. And you can choose then what, you know, how do you spend your time? What are the most, you know, significant identifiers to what you would do with your time if that was in your control completely? Yeah. I, I bet, you know, I bet if more people kind of spent the time thinking about mm. that and even writing it down, <laughs> they may make some changes in their lives when they start to see. Because so many of us are, yes. we, we become imbalanced. Yes. All right, you know. Uh, so, yeah, you, we, we brought music a couple of times. So what type of music do you like to play? Uh, so I, I play, I think, at the core of it, Americana, you know, finger-picky folk music, a bit of country. I really like rock and roll, um, so, you know, sometimes a little more of that. But at the core of it, folk music. Mm-hmm. When, you know? when did you start? So I played saxophone. I played saxophone early in middle school. And then the high school I was at made this kind of weird rule that I think was in response to a dwindling marching band, that if you were in the band, you had to be in the marching band. And that caused conflict because I was playing football. So I ceased to be in the band then, didn't play anything until I guess I was 20. I always wanted to play guitar, but there was never time with sports. And I think that was the first time I really started taking control of me. You know, it took more years to figure out, but I was like, you know what, I'm going to get guitar. I'm just going to figure it out. And that wasn't going so well, so I ended up trading this kind of cheap Telecaster in probably 2002 for a banjo. And uh, every night in training camp, I'd just sit and do finger rolls, counting them off, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And then I never stopped. So slowly I picked up the guitar, a little bit of bass, and I got the bug. I couldn't stop writing and singing. Uh, By by the way, did other players see you do this? Oh, yeah. And what do they say? They liked it, I guess. Oh, yeah, they're intrigued. One of my favorite memories, you know, football is an interesting way to bring together a lot of community. So we had guys who were from rough parts of Baltimore or Virginia Beach mm. from, you know, different backgrounds. And you had guys who were from rural Kentucky. 
Um, and then you had, you know, guys who were from a whole different class. But so at times I was learning banjo. I'd sit in the, I'd sit in the locker room and play that. And I remember guys just dancing, you know, watching a, uh, an urban guy who grew up on hip hop and like go-go music from Baltimore dance to like a banjo tune. It's mm. beautiful. I don't think I'll ever see it again in another mm. part of my life. Wow. I have football, thank for that. So they liked it. You know, they listened to probably hundreds of terrible songs. You know, I used to burn CDs of just these massive amounts of songs I'd make. They were awful. I'd give them to everybody. But you <laughs> got to write 300 bad songs before you can write a good one. And um, is that... Really, what the ratio is? That's going to be discouraging to all would-be songwriters out there. At least say it's you know, three to one instead of three hundred. No, I'm pretty sure it's three hundred. You know, <laughs> I think in anything you want to do, like there's a there's a real problem with people's like fear of failure. Like, why you have to fail to learn? So if you're afraid to yeah. fail, then you can never you, know, you can't learn. So I think you know the encouragement with a three hundred to one instead of three to one is like. Don't be afraid to just bomb a whole lot. Yeah. And then eventually you bomb enough, you'll know how to make a good one. So maybe it's not 300. It's probably more like, you know, 250. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that <laughs> makes everyone feel better. Yeah, so um, you're, you're in a band now? Oh, uh, am I? Or you play, yeah, you yeah, play the, for, for yourself? The band, the band never broke up. Uh, I think we all just uh, are taking care of other parts of our lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but we were active for about eight years eight or years. so. Did yeah. you tour around? Is that what mm -hmm. you did? Yeah, that? toured around, played a lot of things. You know, in, in bands, as a business, is interesting. You know, you, you both are looking to make money from gig to gig, and you're looking to build a core network. So, you know, what do you call it in business? Early adopters or something like that. So, you know, you're, you're focusing on your region, growing one city at a time, mm -hmm. more fans. And then you're looking for ways to grow more venues uh, to pay bills in between other new cities. So, yeah, we did a lot in New England, slowly started hitting into the south a little bit and push into the Midwest. Any any uh, any hits, any songs people are going to know about? <laughs> I don't think. Maybe. I don't know. It was, uh, you know, part of the same reason that football was hard for me. There's, uh, what do they call it in rock and roll? Selling out. I, just, I always <laughs> had this, I had this real hard time in, 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 Early in, in music, I never wanted to talk about football. I think I was still so conflicted about what that existence was. And you yeah. talked about identity. I didn't like the identity as a former patriot, right? And now I'm older and wiser and can understand the whole picture of me and that, yes, that is incredibly interesting, without a doubt, shaped me. Um, but in those early years, I just – I refused always to talk about it, which isn't a good idea if you want to be successful to refuse free media. That's stupid. <laughs> um, I remember ESPN wanted to do an article about the band and me, and I did it begrudgingly. I think I made the whole band talk about me instead of myself because I was, you know, throwing a 24-year-old yeah. hissy fit. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Tallahassee was the name of the band. Um, old Brown Shoes was probably the most successful yes. tune. Um, but yeah, it was great. And really for me, we wanted to have monetary success, but I think we wanted that in a way that we didn't want to have to spend time apart. And if you look at any occupation really, or thing that I've done, I really like a team, you know, a band's just a team, the mm -hmm. locker room's a van. Uh, it's a different set of scenarios, but it's the same thing. You're going into a bar in a city or a, sh a venue in a city that you don't know anyone and you're trying to win them over, 
Um, and you're taking that that Bill Belichick, Bill Parcells mentality that everyone has their role and you yeah. polish it up. Everyone's got to do their job. And so you interesting, you're connecting the team aspect of professional football yeah. to uh, being you know, a hippie rock and roller traveling around. <laughs> so, <laughs> Those uh, are not the two groups no, that, uh, that come together no, in most people's not. mind. I, 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 was telling, uh, I was telling someone this the other day. You know, a young band, we were operating out of Boston. A young band came to me after a show and was like, hey, you know, how do we get tight or how did you get tight mm -hmm. as a band? You know, sound, cohesive. It's kind of a weird question. And so I said to him, well, when we practice, I have a schedule that I lay out. There's like 13 pieces and we follow the schedule. And sometimes we cut the tempo of the, the music halfway down, which is our guitar player and songwriter's idea. He's a brilliant guy. Um, and I was like, and we script it, and we stick to it, and we know what to work on. And the look on their face was like, what? Like, you schedule a practice, and going back to it, I learned that from football. Every day you had a, a football in practice, there's a schedule from warm-up, stretching, yeah. calisthenics. Yeah. So yeah. I just applied that. I was like, this works for the best uh, teams and the best business in the world. Why, you know, why can't why, that work for a rock it? and roll band? Why wouldn't it? I mean, what you're talking about is discipline, which... Is there a mm -hmm. field where that's not important? <laughs> An endeavor in life, totally, uh, and uh, and preparation, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and for seriousness sure. of intent, and yes. uh, and and creating that team. Those yes. are those are essentials for anything. That's it. Yeah. Um, do you want to? Can you play us something from maybe? The, can you play a little lick from the from the from the song? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you only got a ukulele. We only have a ukulele <laughs> here. I mean, that's a bit of a challenge yeah, for you. I don't but want... maybe I'll pick it up and see if I can make some sounds later for you. Okay. I don't okay. think I've well, messed with a ukulele. My son, we had one. My son uh, picked it up and was playing Smashems with it, and uh, he totally broke off most of the strings. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I don't know the chords, but I'll play around with something. Okay, we'll give it to you in, 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 in a few minutes. Cool. So um, the music business, you mentioned business music, it's Kind of amazing, right? Because yeah. songs are worth financially very, very yes. little unless you're, you know, uh, I don't know what some, uh, yeah, Lady Gaga or something like that. They're they're given away almost. Spotify yes. pays some minuscule yes. uh, amount. Yes, and um, it seems like the real money, if you want to look at it that way, comes from touring, from yes. performances. Absolutely. Yeah. So, do you know uh, a well-known folk musician named Gillian Welch by chance? Gillian Welch. No, I don't. So she has this great song. What is it called? I think it's called, like, Everything is Free Now. Huh. And the entire song is about the music industry and the controllers of money realizing that artists have this thing inside of them that they have to create. Mm -hmm. and, and so the point of the song is, well, they realize that musicians and artists were going to make art or music no matter what. Yep. Um, because they had to. And so then they figured out, oh, well, we can take that and then sell it for whatever amount because they're going to do it anyways. Yeah. I think there's a bit of truth in that. And, and as, as musicians, you know, you'd often hear people complaining about Spotify or this digital era of music. Um, that, you know, I get it. Like when they put digital music into bars, you didn't have to hire a bar band. So you lost regular paychecks. And to the unions of... Um, of orchestral music, you know, a lot of them are now using soundtrack music instead of paying for a pit orchestra. And I think there's the working man's everyday musical, those issues. When you get into looking at being a songwriter, I think it was a Planet Money podcast, broke down 
the kind of investment scheme and makeup of a hit single in summer. So they looked at a Rihanna song and they said, well, this is how much you pay daily this number of songwriters. This is how much the studio time costs. This is what that takes. And then they took that equation, which was millions of dollars, and said, well, if you have a top five single, this is how much you make touring. So, you know, I look at it like, the same way that you invest a lot of money into a blockbuster film, and if that hits, you make billions on opening day, I think there's a section of music and pop music that is that big money. Now, the guy who's not motivated by money, myself, has right. no interest in that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it was that reality of I want to do a real thing. I didn't leave football to just pursue money again. It was, you know, I'm going to do this, and yeah, if it means it's giving it away for free, and the system is rigged, that's okay. I just want to be a part of a thing that the motivation is not that. Okay. Um, but it was eye-opening to me. You yeah. know, I had, like you said, hippie rock and roll. I had that image in my mind. I remember we first started trying to get shows in Boston, and uh, we were living in Providence at the time, and the number of bands and venues that were like, well, can you bring at least 90 people, and, you know, and other bands that were mad about you being on their territory and that was my response I was like wait isn't this the opposite I left football because all this you know competition driven thing wait you're in the same boat you know and then I kind of realized oh that's going to be every industry you can choose to play that way yes you can choose to view the world that way or you can choose to take a different perspective and we did that and I think ultimately that's why the band couldn't have a sustaining power of funding all of our lives. You know, it's hard. A band has to finance five different households. Right. That's a lot. That's a lot, and you're gone, so then your relationships really take a toll. I think is the end of our our doing it as a band, and I wasn't seeing my wife much, and I started realizing, oh, this is why most touring musicians are divorced. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, that's why there's a plague of uh, wrecked relationships. A, so it's quite a, uh, quite a deal that's being made here, right? Mm. Yeah, and when you talk about, you know, music business and how you think about that, uh, I think you said blockbuster movies, being an author is actually not all that different either yeah, because totally. publishers will provide advances to yes. authors and it'll be next to nothing and most books sell for, don't <laughs> sell, they barely sell. But there are a few, you know, yes. uh, like Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, is paying for thousands of, of uh, other writers to have yes. their book published yes. by Penguin because yes. of the amount of money coming in. Yes. Uh, so it's a very interesting yeah. um, uh, philosophy. It is. Well, and, and when you look at music in, say, the 90s, um, the game was played that way more. It was still CDs, compact discs yeah, sold. There was right, a lot right. more money. When digital music happened, that all shut down. I had some friends who played in, in big, uh, bigger record label bands in the late 90s into the 2000s, and they were getting advances, $100,000 advances to make records for bands that you wouldn't even know existed now, but they were giving those out because of the same premise. But when digital music happened it became, well, you don't give those out as much. Instead, you get one person, you curate their look all the way through, you write them songs, there's more money. You know, you hardly look in, in pop music. There aren't a whole lot of bands that can be successful. It's easier to groom an individual mm. than it is to groom an entire band. You, you know, you're, you're right when you think about some of the names of people that become become famous. They're generally... You yeah, know, sing singles. Yeah, on, this on and so so. And then yeah. the bands that are touring, it seems like you know, it's always U two, the Rolling Stones. You know, yeah. Uh, what era are they from? That's when bands existed. And, and they, their brand is so gigantic that they yes. can keep on going. Well, and interesting, if you look at the history of either the Beatles or the Stones before they were the thing you know as, 
Um, both those bands played for three, four years straight every night in dance clubs in Germany. Right. So they learned every hit single, and they could afford that because you got paid because there wasn't a CD and there wasn't digital music, so you had to have a band play all the hit songs. Yeah. So they got tight and good as a band because they played for three years everyone else's music, and in the Beatles' case, learned to write hit songs. That's not... That is not the industry any longer. Those don't exist. Bands are expected to bring fans and money to the bar instead of the bar paying them for a service, which is fine. You know, like most things, you have to accept that times change yeah. and, you know, choose if you want to play the game or not. You know, it doesn't do much to complain about right. it. It's up the terms or don't. It is uh, it is fascinating how it's how it's changed. And. Uh, when you talk about the Beatles playing, you know, in Germany, Hamburg, mm-hmm. uh, for three years, something like that, right? <laughs> uh, it's a version of the 300 Bad Song. I don't yeah. Know they, I don't know if they had. Yes. Maybe they had 300 Bad no, Songs, No, probably too. not. Let's just Who believe knows? they're protégés. Well, know? they're uh, better than <laughs> most, if not anyone. But nonetheless, they had three years of trying to figure out yes, how to perform. Totally. And how to create that stage presence. And yes. Yeah, yeah. There's no, 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 no replacement for preparation, for deep There's learning, no. for, for kind of paying your dues. Yes. It's, it's, yeah, it, so uh, let's take a quick break, uh, come back to Bri- with Brian, and I want to talk about yet another career of yours, which is uh, <laughs> tattoo artist and artist in general. You know what? I was just talking to Brian about this winner-take-all type of thing that goes on in the music business, in the book business. I wonder what that's going to happen in the podcast business. And um, boy, it would be nice if uh, all of you are liking this uh, this podcast and this conversation with Brian would uh, give me one of those magical five-star reviews and uh, tell your friends, uh, tell your friends, um, subscribe. The more people we have, the uh, more interesting this is going to be. And I don't know about winner take all because there's some unbelievably great podcasts that are out there. We just want to do the best uh, job we can, but it sure helps if, uh, if you're, if you're enjoying the show, tell your friends. We're back with, uh, with Brian uh, Bartholomus. And yeah, he found the ukulele hanging around the studio and uh, is playing, uh, playing a little bit. Um, and it's kind of like a smooth entry to our last, uh, our last segment. Brian, the tattoo artist. <laughs> I think he was in... Well done. Yay. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I've only played these things like three times. Wow. I, uh, I think the last time I played one... I went into the permits office in Hartford Village, um, and the woman there had one sitting out. And I'm like, I'm totally the nosy guy who sees a fretted instrument and is like, what uh, What you got there? So I wandered in, and she had like a baritone ukulele. I was like, do you mind if I play it for like 10 minutes? And she's like, yeah. So I sat in the permits office just greeting people playing ukulele. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know it well, but, you know, every every guitar... And every instrument has kind of its own sound. Yeah. I find now that I leave guitars and weird tunings all over my house. Really? So I've become like, I have a weird relationship where I'll, I'll pick up a guitar and forget what it's in. And it takes me like five minutes to figure out what it is. Um, but I don't, it's, it's done the opposite where I can't memorize a song anymore. I'm like, oh, instrument, cool, play it. Forget what I just played. But anyways. Uh, you, you said you have uh, yeah, yeah, twins. I have twins, yes. How old are they? They turned two uh, earlier this month. So I imagine that music will be part of their lives. It Mm. already is, no doubt. But uh, are you thinking of introducing various instruments to them to see what they find interesting? So currently in the main uh, part of our house, there's a piano, and that stays open. 
There's a drum, a floor tom. There are three guitars, one for the kids, a broken ukulele, a mandolin, a guitar with an amplifier, and uh, a little, like, uh, what's it called? Mellotron. A couple harmonicas. Yeah, they all the time. So they pick up stuff just all the to time. play because it's a toy for mm-hmm. them and they're starting to yep. hear it. And my son is starting to put it together. He he has like a little kid's guitar. So he goes and grabs it and then he brings me my guitar, one of them, uh, and he says, Dad, I play. <laughs> and so the thing they like now, I can I can make a song up about anything at any time pretty easily. So I ask him what they want a song about and then I sing it. And he sits there and makes bad noises and kind of sings along. So, yeah, you know, even without trying, they know that yeah. Dad does it constantly. That's, that's fantastic. It'll be, yeah. it'll be great to see that uh, and for them to experience that as yeah. they're growing up. Uh, so back to the tattoo <laughs> artist world. So why are you a tattoo artist? Why is that a <laughs> why significant am I a part tattoo of artist? your identity? Yeah, I love that question. Um, I guess we have to go back... To childhood a bit, and then forward a little to college, and then all the way back around. Um, so growing up in rural Ohio, uh, in Geauga County, there wasn't a whole lot of subculture. So, you know, as a kid, I eventually got into punk music and hardcore and skateboarding. I was telling someone the other day, uh, I started ordering just skateboard catalogs. They were free. They'd mail them to you. And it was like this like cheat way to get pictures of art and image without paying for it. And they'd <laughs> mail them out to my house. And I grew up in Amish country. So, you know, my view is Amish buggies rolling around wow. and open farm fields. So I started seeing tattoos on musicians. And I... Uh, I started seeing tattoos on professional wrestlers. I remember thinking, like, whoa, that's a, now that's a guy. You know, <laughs> like, they own their life. You know, they own their life so much that they can do what they want with their body. I think that was the first kind of thing. So I got a tattoo when I was 18. It's not very good. It's not memorable. But I love it. It was the first one. Um, and then I got a couple more into college. And then I met a, a fellow in Virginia named Tim Forbes. And it was the first time that I met an artist... Uh, who was a tattooer, who, he was just a thing that I didn't know existed, right? Like, he tracked the mountains, and he hiked, and he hunted, but he also made weird oil paintings, and he also made tattoos of, like, mashup creatures and listened to old country music. Mm. You know, I'd never met a man who listened to George Jones and hunted and also drew punk rock images. I was, that was it. He had me. I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is a life I can have. So, I, I, you know, I always wanted to do that. I wanted to get an apprenticeship. But the fear of failing in football, the fear of telling my parents I'm dropping out of football and the University of Virginia to become a tattooer was more daunting mm. than what my brain could hold. So, you know, as, as time went forward, tattooing was important to me. It was a ritual in my life. I'd get tattooed. It was one of the only places that I felt like me and then I felt safe to be a weird version of me. In most of the, the scenarios I was in, UVA is like a it's a flip-flop and pearl kind of town. <laughs> and football is, you know, kind of a man town. But like in the tattoo parlor, I could be as weird as I wanted. And that always identified with me. So throughout the band, I started selling art. I've drawn since I was a child. I have terrible anxiety. My mom would hand me a piece of paper, and I'd draw just Mm. whatever, and it made me feel soothed. Uh, And so I always drew. So I drew through high school, drew through college. Um, And into the band, I started, you know, as the band had success, people started buying uh, T-shirts with my images. 
And then I started selling paintings at a merch booth to help, you know, my own pocketbook. Mm. Then I started selling some paintings and doing freelance stuff and just kept drawing um, and realized that, you know, again, like rock and roll and uh, and a bit like football, it was it was a unique world that that fit me well. So when the band, uh, when the guys decided that touring was too daunting of a task full time to make a living, I finally saw my window at what, 31, 32 years old to do the thing I always wanted. And the irony is it's, it's the first job I've ever had that like works for me. Like every other job was like, well, it's okay, but this, or it's okay, but this. It's the first job where I'm like, oh, I love what I do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I should just listen to 14-year-old Brian and started sticking tattoos on my legs when I was a kid. I don't actually believe that. I think I had to run through the gauntlet of experiences yes, that, to become what I am as a, a tattooer. There's seldom a shortcut. Even the, when you look back, you could see it, mm. but I don't think it would have ended up the same No, the same it can't. Way. Yeah, but you, it, It's interesting to describe the UVA football kind of culture in the town and the mm-hmm. flip-flop wearing town. But you know, today we see in football and basketball especially – um, athletes covered with <laughs> yeah. tattoos. So what's you know, what's up with that? Like, how did that happen? Man, how did that happen? When you were when you were playing, did you see? A lot there of wasn't athletes a ton. With... I was. There were guys, you know, especially from other cultures. A lot of the a lot of the black dudes had more tattoos. Yeah. But especially in middle class rural white communities, that was hugely yeah. frowned upon. You didn't see it. Um, I think you know I was one of the only guys with visible tattoos, or one of maybe ten on my college team. Um, but I think, you know, like the boom in tattoos we see now with the internet and social media, there was just a, a giant exposure. So, you know, you mm-hmm. saw your favorite players had them, mm-hmm. so you went and got them. And that's interesting because I think part of, you know, part of that thing that lured me to tattoos was you had to be someone who was assured enough in your existence and to be able to get them. But that's not always so much the case now. Um, but yeah, they definitely have boomed right. heavily. A- absolutely. And so the tattoos that you have now, I'm looking at your arms, who did those? Oh, I mean, Different everyone. <laughs> I, so, yeah. I, I assume you cannot do your own unless you, maybe on you your can. legs. Or I just, I was trying out a new liner. I zapped that on myself last week. Uh, this You're going to run out of territory this if you is keep old, trying stuff. I'm huge. Do you see me soon? <laughs> um, this was one I did on myself maybe two years ago, and then my thighs are just littered with practice. So those are ones that you did yourself. Uh, obviously, in your arms, somebody else. Yeah, totally. To or your you know, and or when you're tattooing yourself, it's less about uh, giving yourself like a, a quote-unquote good tattoo. It's about learning. Yeah. Tattooing is incredibly hard. You're dealing with machines that are running, um, you know, 130 times a second, dealing with magnetic pool, electrical current, and, like, weight and size of springs. So you're dealing with physics and electricity. Then you're dealing with being an artist. And then you're dealing with, uh, you know, the, the medium you're working in is attached to a person that has feelings mm-hmm. uh, and fleshy skin that you have to stretch that is on a rounded surface. So, you know, you're not, when you're learning on yourself, it is about trying to figure out how to properly in, implement it. Right, right. Uh, what about the, um, the designs or the shapes or the, um, what, what, what they look like? Uh, do customers come to you in your shop? And say, I want this, or they say they want a tattoo, and can we talk about it? Or, or Yeah. It happens in every way, really. Uh, and when you're looking at the history of tattoos, 
it's evolved a bit in the past uh, 15 to 20 years. So, you know, classically in American tattoos, you had what was called flash. These are all images that are plastered on walls that you go in and you choose from. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking from the 1930s, even before, um, until really, I'd say, early 90s, you would go in a shop and you'd pick something off a wall and they'd put it on you. Um, and then again, a bit with the boom of internet, you know, internet images and ideas have replaced that a bit. It's, you know, it's flash, but it doesn't exist in your shop. So people go on Pinterest, they see something, they want it. And then you get into an era where uh, tattooing has become like music, like movies, like books, a, uh, a money institution, at least people mm -hmm. think that. So they've made television shows and you know, and even in the 90s, there was not these huge industries of suppliers. And now it seems like every day there's a new company trying to get some of the tattoo money. Mm -hmm. And But all of that kind of visibility has changed a bit how tattoos work. So, yes, there are times where people come to me and they bring an image and say, I'd like something like this. And then I try to create something similar. More often than not, people either come in to see my paintings. I make a lot of weird... Mm tattoo paintings that are based in traditional kind of function or imagery, but they're my own. And really what it's become for me recently is people like to see their ideas drawn into my world. So, you know, I have definitely a place that I illustrate from. And so often, you know, we were, someone will come and say, hey, I want to see a rooster like a rat rod uh, kind of caricature, but driving a VW bus with tractor tires. Hmm. And I'm like, cool, and you're going to pay me for that? I have the best job ever. <laughs> that's, so, a, that, that's one of the best things you could say about uh, any <laughs> career, right? Any job. I mean, you actually get paid for, for doing that. Yes. Um, that's how you know you found something that fits you well. Exactly. Uh, so... Um, uh, if, uh, if someone, I mean, the thing that's weird about, to me about this tattoo thing is, uh, it's not like it's on a piece of paper and you could, or a painting and it's on yeah. the wall and you say, you know, I don't like it that much. Yeah. I'm going to put it here or I'm going to put it there or I'm going to put it in the basement and yeah. not show it to anyone. Yeah. You don't get that option with no. a tattoo. I and I actually think that's part of the beauty. You know, like rarely in your life do you make a decision that you have no kind of recoil from. So one could argue you have children, right? You can't walk away from them. Well, you actually can. You can be a terrible parent. You can move to California and hide. You can't really do that from a tattoo. And can, so can you not remove them at all? You can a bit. There's laser treatments, I but you know, they're super expensive. You're burning your skin. You're more or less giving yourself repeated sunburns to fade it. Yeah. Or you can cover it with another tattoo. And and that's, you know, that's the beauty for me is it is a practice in making a decision and then living with it. It's not a thing many people get to practice. And that's why tattoos aren't for everyone. You know, I think because the popularity of tattoos, there's probably more people getting them that shouldn't have. You know, because you used to have to walk into a place that had scary music and big, scary, bearded men like myself hmm. and then make the decision that you wanted to join that league of people. But now that you have uh, a larger presence of tattoo humans on the Internet and on television, people don't necessarily understand, like, no, it's a, it is a ritual and a rite of passage. Mm -hmm. When a tattoo is placed on you, you will change. Whether it changes and you're better and you feel good mm -hmm. and you want another or it changes and you're like, oh, I just did that. I regret it. You're, it's going to do a thing to you no yeah, matter what. Because it, it, you're carrying it all the yeah. time. And that's it's why there. tattoos have been around for so long. There's an undeniable piece mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. 
you know, um, uh, graffiti artists, some mm -hmm. have become actually famous. Mm -hmm. And it used to be, uh, I don't know that people said tattoos were like just defacing public property. People <laughs> made that choice. Nobody forced you to get a tattoo. Yep. But certainly that was the case with a lot of graffiti. And some For of it sure. still is defacing because it's so ugly. But yes. there are some amazing artists For sure. that are out there. And some of them, have been their work has been displayed in, yeah. in museums. So is that happening already in, oh, in yeah. terms of tattoos? Oh, is? yeah, totally. There, I mean, there are... There are guys who can make realism tattoos that really look, you know, there's a guy named Jesse Ricks right down in Keene, and he can make a tattoo look like a block of your skin's floating away with a solar system under it, you know. Um, but the interesting thing with tattoos, and I think uh, a famous art tattooer in the 60s, Tom DeVita, said this, that ultimately, and that's one of the reasons I love it, tattooing is a folk art. You can take you can take uh, a fine art and you can sell it and it has an economical value, right? So you can buy uh, a Matisse and now you have a, a thing that is sellable for X, Y, and Z quantity. Even if you pay uh, a celebrity, quote-unquote celebrity tattooer, and you pay their huge rate, which maybe is thousands of dollars for this tattoo, once it's on you, it's worthless. Because you can't sell it. Yeah, it has no value on a street. You as a person get it and you love it. And it's beautiful. And in that, that degree, there's a ton of value. But there's no money. You can't cut your arm mm. off and sell it to someone because it's a Brian Barthelmus. Right. I love that. Yeah. That's so cool. You know, because I think when we're talking about Blockbuster and we're talking about music in these other places I, I've existed a bit, everything's a commodity. In, in the NFL, a, a person's a commodity. You're buyable as a certain amount for the function you do. Uh, in music, if, you know, you're buyable for how much your song is worth and can be placed into TV and music and what that song is worth. In the in the tattoo world, I make a tattoo for you because you want one, and it's worth the amount that I'm going to do it for, but you don't get a thing. You know, you're not getting a tattoo because it's a valuable piece of collector's yeah, item. Right. There's no, re there's no resale market. No, I love that too. Like that's a, you know, and I also love that in, a, in an era where everything's digital, you can take 500 pictures of your kids, right? Yeah. And maybe you look at one out of 500. When you get a tattoo, you get one from mm. a guy who's breathing on you yeah. and it hurts like the dickens and you're bleeding and then you have it. And it's, you know, if you have one, it's the only one. You know, so it's kind of counterintuitive to this digital, disposable, walkaway culture. You mm -hmm. make a decision to get one thing, and then you live with the fact that you have it, like it or not. I, that's beautiful to me as a, a rebellion against the, you know, the, the Internet, which I'm not all, I'm not against the Internet, but I think it definitely is a, a culture changer. Right, right. The contrast is clear. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've had a bunch of different careers, uh, <laughs> some continuing at the same time, probably more to come. Uh, getting to know you a little bit. One of the questions I like to ask folks is, uh, you know, if you could have a mulligan, if you could do something, if you could mm. do it over, would there be some other career? That's why it's kind of a weird question for you because you have yeah. done some of those other careers. But yeah. even even today, as we're as we're sitting here, uh, is there something else you think you can imagine doing, uh, or if you started all uh, you know mm. over again, a different track you may have uh, you may have gone on. I'll say the closest answer I have, and I, I joke with my wife about this, that I think at this point, not really a do-again. I'm, I'm a really kind of uniquely my own thing. I don't really meet people that are like, oh, you also play professional football. Oh, and we're a caseworker. Oh, and you uh, played rock and roll. And you make tattoos. That's like, so, you know, I don't think I'd trade any of it because of that. But I do, I joke about I should act in some movies. 
and then I should probably write a book about the entire ridiculousness of my own existence. <laughs> so, you know, I think to come. Uh, also, a piano tuner. I think I'd love to be a piano tuner. You just go in, you listen to a beautiful instrument, you put it in tune, you walk away. That seems really romantic uh, to me. You mentioned your, your wife, and I guess you met her at the UVA. I did, Could yeah. you share kind of the story of when you first met her? For sure. So, you know, this whole hand-in-hand, whole-person idea kind of comes from that. I met her. I was in a dorm my first year at UVA, um, and I made friends with these guys across the hall who also listened to punk rock and Mm. rock and roll. And so I went to a show with them at this venue under a Vietnamese restaurant, and she had gone to high school with that kid and she was there i'd never met anyone like her she was taking photographs you know and here i am underage probably drunk i don't know drinking i'm being bad and she's sober and following the rules and taking photographs of a moment i was intrigued from the start so yeah we were friends for about two years just uh going to concerts listening to music um and i think you know some point in there both of us realized like oh you're also really attractive. Oh, I kind of <laughs> want to be with you all the time. Uh, oh, shoot, I have feelings. So, yeah, we met then as kids, and I think this year marks us being together in some capacity 18 years as long as we lived in our parents' house, and that kind of blew both of our minds. But, yeah, I'm a tattooing former musician football player, and she runs the uh, the wellness office for undergraduates at Dartmouth. We're like as much of a dichotomy as you seemingly could find, but she jokingly tells her friends that she learned all her work on me. Thankful for that. <laughs> well, you know, when you say wellness, <laughs> there, there's something to what you've been sharing that has a lot to do with wellness. Sure does. Maybe your own wellness, but yes. uh, hopefully people listening can think about how, you know, their own career, their own steps, yes. their own you know, how they craft their, their the, the life and the journey they want. True. Um, yeah, actually, along those lines, if you could magically go back to, say, when you were 20 or 21, mm. um, and you, you were able to sit next to yourself at 21, mm. given your vast experience in life that you've lived now, what piece of advice would you give yourself? What, what, would, you, mm. what would you tell your, your, your own 21-year-old self um, that, you know, hey, you should do this, you should not do this, pay attention to this, this is mm. what's important, or... or, or any other way you want to frame it? What would I say to me? Man, hitting those hard questions, aren't you? I think I would I would tell me something about, you know, uh, don't, don't be afraid to listen to yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, monetary stability is not the, uh, the final answer to the puzzle. You know, I think I'd tell me that even though other people may think that something sounds ludicrous, that there is, I know me as much or uh, better than other people or yeah. seemingly what culture says I should or shouldn't be. Great. That question really elicits all sorts of interesting uh, <laughs> uh, ideas, and I think very, very valuable uh, lessons. As, uh, as we uh, uh, walk our way uh, to the end of the podcast, I want to thank you, Brian, and uh, uh, you could play us uh, off off the air with whatever you want to, you want to do with our little studio ukulele. Beautiful. And thanks so much for being with uh, us. Thanks on for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure.